want solutions, you must focus your mind. Introducing your host, Mason Hargrave. This week, I sit down with Sandy Simon, the Gunter Global Professor at the Rockefeller University and head of the Laboratory of Cellular Biophysics. His career has touched upon a variety of fields from researching pediatric cancer to designing novel biophysical measurements as well as imaging techniques. In concert with Shai Shaham, another Rockefeller professor, Sandy runs the introductory Experiment in Theory in Modern Biology course for first-year PhD students in the Biosciences program here at the university, and as such has played an important role in my transition from physics and mathematics to biology. It was from him that I first began to learn how to think like a biologist, and I'm grateful to have him as a guest on this podcast. Without further ado, I introduce to you Sandy Simon. So you're kind of a you're kind of a, an expert on a number of topics, one of which being um, tra- transport proteins. Is this correct? Transport proteins through the um, through the nucleus. Is this something that you've worked on, or is this something that am I am I mixing this up? Uh, we've worked on a number of problems of how do various macromolecules get across membranes, whether it's getting across the membrane of the endoplasmic reticulum or getting across the bacterial membrane, or in this case, the example you're referring to, how do proteins get into the nucleus, which means getting somehow across the nuclear membrane. So why? So we, we do here, we do this thing called the four Fs, right? Mm-hmm. So finding a problem worth solving is the first F. The second one is framing it such that it appears solvable. The third one is figuring out the solution. And the final one is funding. Um, which we don't necessarily have to get into. But uh, I guess the the first part of this is, why is that an interesting question, and how did you come to asking it? Um, cells' identity is often established by sort of keeping um, certain molecules in, other molecules out. Right. And their survival depends upon, for example, um, keeping calcium out or keeping potassium in or sodium out. Right. Um, yet, despite having to meet, like, like that's on the outside of the cell, on the inside of the cell, eukaryotic cells, you want to keep certain things like your DNA inside, and you want to keep certain things like um, viruses out. Um, in the mitochondria, again, you want to sort of keep certain things in, certain things out. Yet, despite that, you still need to get various large macromolecules getting across the membrane, whether it's Proteins secreting things into their environment to signal to other cells, or for digestion or survival, or for um, signals to get into the nucleus to trigger um, different activities, or mRNA to get out, or even for the mitochondria, you need to get certain substrates in, or even certain proteins in, because most proteins in the mitochondria are actually encoded in the cytosol. So the challenge for cell is, how do you selectively modulate that permeability just to let through the things you want to let through without letting through things you don't want? Right. How do you how do you have a gatekeeper to say we want these molecules inside or outside of the cell, and we want these other these other ones to yeah. not be able to go across? And then and, how do you let like a large protein, which is going to be um, in its mass, let's say on the you know hundreds or even hundreds of thousands of kilodaltons, get across the membrane and yet still keep a calcium ion? Which is just you know forty five daltons from not crossing the membrane. Right. How do you keep small things from crossing, but right. let big things through? Right. 
That is that is immediately an interesting question. Right. Why is it a useful question? So there are two ways to approach it. One is to say that, you know, I'm going to find an interesting problem in basic biology and go after it. And just as a statement of belief, think that if we can get after any fundamental mechanism in biology, it's going to have really interesting translational applications. Right. That you um, maybe won't be able to predict from... In advance. From, in advance. So um, the, the initial question of, of how do proteins go to different places is something that actually Gunter Blobel was one of the pioneers of at Rockefeller back in the late 60s. Um, and this is following up with the work of George Pilati and other people who had been here for years studying how a cell organizes itself, how it sends different components to different places. And he just got very involved in what's involved in determining where a protein goes. And mm -hmm. for a variety of actually good um, experimental reasons, he proposed, or someone say he, he um, speculated, that there are like little targeting signals, like zip codes that say, you know, take me to the mitochondria or take me to the plasma membrane. And then there are certain postal carriers who recognize these zip codes and bring them to the different destinations. And he proceeded to go about and use this um, speculation to make experimental predictions that he could test. Mm -hmm. And over time, he actually worked out the whole sorting of different proteins to go to different locations. And not only do I go to mitochondria or plasma membrane, but beyond that, for proteins that just go partially across the membrane, how do they get one particular topology where they might have one end of the protein sticking out or another part in or even multiple domains across? He went after this out of just sort of basic interest in biology. But once we had that, we suddenly realized that many diseases were diseases in which the protein of interest was being made just fine, and yet you were getting a disease. And what was wrong is not that the protein wasn't functioning, but that there was a disorder in its targeting. So these were sorting and targeting disorders. The protein was fine, but where it was being taken to or where it was, well, it was uh, not being delivered location. to was the wrong location. Right, so the, the protein, it's, sorry, the cell itself is not just a soup of different molecules, but they're in fact highly organized and where they go is very important to their function. Because I think in my head, what maybe has what was a mistake before I came here and, you know, took, took, took your class was that the, the, it, we just had jumbling proteins and stuff kind of haphazardly bouncing around inside of a bag we call a cell and that they just happen to randomly bump into each other and get lucky, which maybe is partially true, but it's not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. So how do I correct that picture for myself? So in, instead, it's the organ, organization that's important. So for example, um, a prison, a hospital, and a school are all made out of the same components, but they're put together in different ways to serve very different functions. The same way a brain cell, a colon cell, and a kidney cell are made of fundamentally the same components, but put together in different ways right. to serve different functions. So it's, it's how you organize them, how you arrange them. Now, there, there is some, you know, degree of control over that where, you know, you have more of a certain kind of protein made in one kind of cell and more of an, another protein in yet a different cell, but it's how you organize them that really is a critical factor. But I, I raise this as an example of a case where, you know, in advance, you know, he didn't say, I'm going into this because I want to solve the problem of, let's say, cystic fibrosis, which is a problem of a key protein not making it up to the surface hmm. or because he wanted to solve certain immunological problems or problems in protein sorting and targeting. He was going after a very basic cellular process. And so now in retrospect, we can see the clear 
applications. So for example, much of um, biotechnology is based on mass producing proteins for use, like making insulin that's right. now being used for diseases. That's all being done by people realizing, oh, we can take this particular gene, we could put a little targeting signal on it such that we can put it into bacteria and have the bacteria now secreted for us so we can mass produce it. So when you put a targeting signal on something, that, that, that it always feels a little bit hand-wavy to me, where, yeah. where you put a targeting signal on something and it now magically goes to where it goes. How does it go there? How, like once you put it, mm -hmm. you have a molecule, you put a little tag on it, a chemical tag on it, or the body or the cell does, puts a little tag on it to say, you should go here. As you say, it's a zip code. It says, we're going to send this protein or this molecule over to here. Mm -hmm. How does it get sent there? What highway takes it there and what car brings it along the highway? So in a really sort of beautiful series of studies, which were done by Gunter and a number of his students, but I suppose a, a key student was Peter Walter, who's now at UCSF. Um, they showed that there were cytosolic chaperones who would recognize this targeting signal as it was being made. So they called it the signal sequence. So these things were receptors for us. So they were called signal sequence receptors. They would recognize this in a nascent protein being made. And then what they would do is they would stop the ribosome, which is the machinery in the cell that makes proteins. Right. It would stop it from making any more of that protein until such a point that the ribosome then docked down at the appropriate membrane for where this protein is supposed to um, end up. And then only then would it then allow the ribosome to continue making the protein. So it's now being made right into the target membrane. So it would, so, okay, let me see if I'm understanding the process, right? So you have... You have a you have a protein that's getting produced. Mm -hmm. It gets tagged. So the the tag itself in this particular collection of tags are is actually encoded in the RNA. So there's a little sequence in the RNA that so all of your genetic information is encoded in DNA. Yep. From the DNA, you make a copy of it. Right. Sort of an, the, the opposite sense called a messenger RNA, and that goes out to the periphery of a cell where these mach large machines called ribosomes recognize it and they start translating the code in the RNA into proteins. And so for protein targeted to a certain place in the RNA, there's, there's the encoding of the signal that says, okay, go to either mitochondria, the nucleus, the peroxisome, the endoplasmic reticulum. These are separate compartments in the cell. Right. Um, sometimes the signals are the front of the protein, sometimes the middle, sometimes the end. For the ones where it's in the front of the protein, what happens is as soon as it starts being made and comes out of the ribosome, this cytosolic chaperone recognizes it and it'll, it'll actually arrest the ribosome from making any more proteins. So this way, the protein being made doesn't get a chance to come out and fold in some form where it can't get to where it needs to go. Right. It then keeps that ribosome sort of stalled until it reaches its destination. And once it docks down, that chaperone gets displaced and then the ribosome can continue making the protein, allowing it to get into its target destination, which could be, again, the peroxisome, the mitochondria. So, so let's see if I have it, have it this time. So you have a, you have a gene, it gets transcribed into a, a messenger RNA, which are the instructions for how to bring a protein that goes to the protein factory called the ribosome. And if the tag is, if the tag, which is already part of, as in, as in the first part of the protein that comes out is itself a tag, mm -hmm. it, the tag gets produced with the protein. If the first part comes out and that's the tag, 
Then you have another protein which exists to glob on, which stops the stops the production line. It halts the production line. And the interesting thing about this factory, the protein factory, the ribosome, is that it's floating around, and it eventually it can set. It, how does it know where to go? How does, so because um, it feels like it's yeah. just the the question has just been punted to the ribosome yeah. finding the right place. So that chaperone that binds to it, I actually sort of avoided calling it a protein because actually it's a collection of six proteins built on a scaffold of an RNA okay. backbone. So one part, one of those proteins as part of the scaffold binds to this nascent targeting signal. Another part of it interacts with the protein synthesizing machine, the ribosome, to arrest it. Another part of it is the part that can bind to a receptor on the surface of the target membrane. Mm. And once it engages its receptor, the two of them undergo a process where they each activate um, the hydrolysis of a particular source of energy, in this case, GTP, which allows them both to be displaced, and then the process continues. I see. So, so it now has a barb on it, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so as it floats around kind of in a Brownian motion sense, and it bumps into the thing that it should hook onto, it actually hooks on, and that that shunts off the rest of the chaperone, mm -hmm. which is preventing the protein from continuing mm -hmm. to be synthesized, and now the factory line can get started again, the rest of the protein gets produced, and because of that barb, it's actually hooked onto where it belongs inside the cell. Right. And in this particular case, for proteins that have the signal near the very front, once it starts going into the target membrane, what Blobel and actually a whole collection of his students showed is that there's actually a, a particular machine there that as soon as that protein starts going into the target organelle, it actually then clips off the tag. The, clabs, the tag has already served its function and then it's disposed of. Now, all, all of this sounds like a, a sort of very basic, very detailed biochemistry, and yet it's turned out to be the foundation for a lot of important um, both biotechnology work, for example, production of insulin, as, as well as a lot of diseases. And I, I think what we're seeing more clearly nowadays, which previously was a statement of faith, was that basically you could take any area of the cell, or for that matter, any area of an organ or any organ of the body, and if you get assigned to work on it arbitrarily, if you study it and you really get down and understand the mechanisms, there's going to be a clear impact on human health mm -hmm. from it. Um, and for me, that's actually been one of the joys of being in science. You don't know where it's going to go. And particularly you know, at, at Rockefeller, I think it's becoming increasingly true all over science. There's this freedom to go after these fundamental basic questions, knowing that it's really going to have this wonderful you know, impact not that far away on human health. So, so I guess how once you've found something fundamental, how do you go about figuring out what it applies to. Is that even your job at that point? Um, because you do. I know I know you more, maybe more than a lot of people who work on fundamental work are always looking to attach it to some sort of application. Or at least I've seen a number of instances of research of yours that seems to be that way. Uh, it varies. First of all, um, if you don't, then someone else will. And that's fine. Science is a community activity. Right. You know, if, you know, you end up sitting building a certain foundation for building and someone else then realizes, oh, I can make this into this really great, you know, hospital for curing X, Y, or Z. That, that, that's okay. You know, no right. person is going to do everything. Right. Um, but nowadays, it's actually becoming easier to see those immediate applications 
and followed through. And it, it's, it's a very rewarding feeling to come up with something that actually could impact people. But if you just continue doing basic science, that, that's great also. Because someone else is going to follow up on it. And, and that's fine. Right. Uh, there's, I think there's a real advantage to having like many, you know, our, our large number of separate scientists in the field all doing their own independent studies and developing. Um, that, that's what made evolution work, right? You had countless random mutations occurring and all interacting together. I don't Absolutely. think it's got to be a sort of directed research proposal, the same way you, you, you don't really have directed evolution. Right, right, absolutely. One one example, um, if we could backtrack to this this idea that you've uh, this um, research that you've done on uh, how how it is you get a protein through a trans uh, th through a membrane. Um, you had an application of this to HIV, if I remember correctly. Is that correct? So, as part of our general question of how do proteins get across, we started looking at bigger and bigger proteins. And that got us very interested in how do pathogenic bacteria export their toxins, which are large macromolecular complexes. For example, how does Yersinia pestis export its toxin or cholera? Or for that matter, a very similar structure, how do fil filamentous phage get out of cells without disrupting the membrane of the cell that's making it? So a filamentous phage could be seven nanometers across. Um, and it could be like a, a micron or so long. Um, Based on our studies in cells, we were developing a lot of techniques that allowed us to look at how things get across membranes. And at the same time here at Rockefeller, there was a lab run by Peter Modell and Marjorie Russell, where they were looking at how to filament its phage go out. So they were using you know, biochemistry and molecular biology. We had various biophysical and optical techniques. And so we got together and we started applying it to filament its phage going out. Um, that's what led to a series of discussions with David Ho initially on how do bigger things like viruses get out of mammalian cells. And then when Paul Binoche joined um, the Aaron Diamond at Rockefeller a few years later, that just sort of led into a very natural collaboration with him. He, he's done all this incredible work on the molecular biology and the biochemistry, even cell biology of this, of well, all different aspects of HIV. And so we combined it together with our approaches on biophysics and imaging to look at, you know, how does HIV assemble? Right. Well, again, this was a case also where um, for a lot of the really fun stuff in science, you know, no one person can be the be-all and end-all of everything. So it's, it's actually really fun to not have departments here and just have the freedom to go and collaborate with anyone, you know, just as if you have, you know, synergistic interests to work together. With, you know, okay. Sorry, where were we? We were on... About HIV. Yes. Uh, so, so you were wondering how these viruses assemble. Yeah, and so um, I am not a card-carrying virologist. Right. Whereas Paul Binoche is, he knew a lot about basic cell biology and biochemistry. So we combined our two different strengths to go after the problem. And sort of one of the freedoms at, at being at Rockefeller is that it didn't matter if, you know, I'm not a virologist or he's not a biophysicist. You just work together with whomever, and you, you go after something not by your discipline, but by just the question, and then you go after whatever techniques um, you're interested in. Absolutely. Rockefeller is, I think, uniquely in the universities that I applied to for my PhD, um, and the reason I came to Rockefeller was because it was problem, it seemed as if it was a problem-based university, 
or um, rather than a than a or a questions based university um, or a solutions based university rather than a discipline based university where it's it's this is interesting to your discipline and so it's interesting rather it's this is interesting so <laughs> let's see if we can get an answer um, there's 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 sort of a certain siloed nature to a lot of research that um, exists at the departmental level. And by removing the department and having such a small community, it actually makes it tenable to um, to do sorts of collaborations that you wouldn't otherwise get to do. Um, it, it's why I get to spend a lot of my time reading mathematical m- mathematics textbooks, but also be actively involved in biology research, which wouldn't be possible, I don't think, in most other programs. Although I, th- th- that is true. Do you think that's changing? I think we're beginning to see more and more across science in general. Um, I think scientists have always appreciated the interdisciplinary approach. I think institutions are becoming more and more supportive of that. The realization that just science goes after questions, and um, it's been sort of a thrill to see, you know, the greater appreciation in the whole scientific community of just the value of going after a problem and bringing it to bear against it, just whatever techniques, approaches, if you wish, disciplines. I think disciplines are in some ways uh, a relic of, of the history of science developing, which we needed to have some way of teaching some students microbiology and other students biochemistry. And so, so you needed departments to be able to teach the separate subjects. Right. Teaching-wise, I can understand why there are departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the, the issue ends up being that when PhDs are heavily course-based or when there's a large course component mm-hmm. to a given uh, PhD, um, for instance, physics is especially bad for this in, in this way, mm-hmm. which is that, um, you know, various universities that, uh, that I was considering attending showed me this long two to three year list of courses that I would have to take um, if I, you know, if I wanted to get the degree. And I thought about it and I was like, well, I, I don't actually want to do more coursework. I want to start asking questions and reading what's relevant to the questions I'm asking. And it's likely that 80% of what's on this list is not going to be relevant mm-hmm. to the questions that I want to ask. Um, and some things that aren't on this list are going to be, and I'm going to need to want to take those courses. And what, am I going to add those to my course list? So it's just when the department starts becoming the 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 curriculum for you when you're at the research phase of your career, um, rather than the undergraduate, you know, learning phase of your career, I think this can be sort of an issue. It's probably good because it puts some bumpers and prevents people from going totally off rail off the rails. But I think for some people, um, I think myself included, it was sort of not letting me play enough. And it was putting safety guards on something that I could actually handle myself and I could make a good determination as to what I needed to learn um, by talking to enough people and getting enough alternative opinions. Well, part of it is because Rockefeller was not founded initially as a university. It was founded as a research institution where it's based solely on questions. And each separate lab had had their own set of questions that they can go after. That's why the lab sort of became known by the name of the lab head rather than necessarily being defined as a discipline. Right. And that gave the freedom to let people go after things. Whereas if we'd been founded initially as a university with undergraduates, we had to teach the separate disciplines, maybe we would have been forced into that same unfortunate mold as the others. Right. Now, 
Now, have you seen this um, in in overall in academia and in science? Have you seen this change throughout your career? Has has there been a trajectory for this, or kind of hard to tell with all the noise? Oh, I can't tell whether it's because as I've gotten older, I've become more and more aware of just other scientists at other institutions who really value it. And so maybe it's just my own perception that's changed over time. Or maybe, in fact, it really has changed. So when I was applying to graduate school, they did not have all these interdisciplinary programs. Right. But actually, they, they've become much more common now at a lot of institutions. And so, you know, since I didn't do my graduate work at many different institutions, I don't have the sampling to tell you. Right. So it could have been if I'd gone to X, Y, or Z, even though they officially didn't have an interdisciplinary program, it could have been, if you were interested in it, it was available to you. Right. And did you spend any time outside of Rockefeller after your PhD? Uh, I came here as a postdoc and I never left. Oh, got it. It was as your, as your postdoc. Yeah. What did, where was your PhD at? I must have mixed um, so, this up. Oh, so I was at NYU Medical Center. Got it. While I was there, I took many of my graduate courses here. It, it was taking a graduate course here in cell biology. Right. Vincent Olfrey ran that you know, in preparation for each lecture, you would read a dozen or so papers by each investigator. And I read these papers from Gunter Blobel's in which he had postulated how is it that once protein gets targeted to the particular organelle, how does it now get across the barrier of that organelle to get inside? How does it get across the membrane to go inside? Right. And he'd come out with this great paper in 1975 in which he'd made certain speculations for how it got across. In short, he suggested that the same way by which small molecules get across, like ions, sodium, potassium, or sugars. So the way they get across is by small aqueous-filled pore that opens up and lets them across and then shuts. Mm. He proposed a similar mechanism for proteins going across. And I found this sort of fascinating speculation, but there was no data there. And so I went to his lecture expecting him to, you know, elucidate on it and I sat there for three hours, I took all sorts of notes, and I still have my notes from that lecture, but he never addressed the point. <laughs> and so I'd come up with a series of proposals of ways of testing it. So I, I went up to him afterwards and I suggested, well, well what about your X, Y, or Z? Um, and essentially he proposed, okay, so why don't you come here and do it? So. And, and such as, such as history. Yeah. Um, so then, when you're, when you're, so you, you are kind of known among the graduate students because you run the first year course along with Shai Shaham and then quickly turns into cell biology, which is, I think, one of the more commonly taken courses here at the university. I think a lot of people end up taking cell biology. Um, so how did you, and of course, at a university where teaching isn't really, I would say, on the forefront of everyone's minds, and it isn't really required for any professor, as far as I can tell, to do coursework. But what gives you the drive and, you know, kind of what drives you to, to offer courses like this? Um, it's a mixture of paying back and paying forward. I mean, I took the cell biology course here when back when Vince Alfrey ran it, and like that really inspired me, that excited me. Um, it's sort of like paying back for what Alfrey did. And then later on, Gunter took over teaching the course um, for a number of years. Um, but it's also a way of paying forward. I mean, there's, 
I had mentioned earlier, there's a limit to how much that any one of us can do. We rely upon the scientific community. And so, you know, part of your legacy is, you know, the papers you write, um, but part of it is also the students you train and the students you teach. And so this right. becomes a way of now sort of helping to sort of hopefully raise the bar for like the next iterations of scientists. Absolutely. So so the, the, the first year course was a way that I wasn't used to thinking because in math, we did proofs. In physics, we did problem sets. But never had I really been asked the open-end question, how would you test for that? which seemed to be the common theme of the entire first year uh, course. So there were, were actually a few underlying motivations for that. First being that um, when it finally gets down to it, we never actually know what the sort of ground truth is in biology. Right. Um, biology or science is a way of describing the world. Right. Now, if you think about it, for that matter, so is art a way of describing the world. So is theater a way of describing the world. Philosophy, religion, they're all, they're all different ways of describing the world. The difference is with science is that science is not necessarily judged by its aesthetics, the way you would judge either, you know, art or music or philosophy or, you know, religion. How does it make you feel? Science is judged by its predictability. Right. And you want to be able to test things. And so the critical thing is you can have a, a beautiful idea, but how do you test it and how do you go about doing it? That's part of the motivation. But the, the other motivation in the course is that if you look back through the history of science, our, our models are constantly changing. Um, that's the reason why you need new textbooks every few years. And they're not changing because biology is evolving very quickly. I mean, I, I believe in evolution, but it's, it's the basic mechanisms and principles are not evolving so quickly that you need a new textbook every three to five years. Instead, we're suddenly becoming aware of assumptions that underlie certain experiments we did or interpretations that actually we should have questioned. Right. And part of the point was to take classic papers, papers that I highly respect, papers that I sort of even you know, guide a lot of my own experiments over, but then question them and ask, okay, what assumptions did they make? What assumptions should have been questioned, and how would you test those assumptions? Right. This was this seemed to be one of the this was this was one of the interesting parts of the course for me was that it was taking these really really classic papers that you, you could I could Google them and there would be tons of people talking about these papers on all sorts of different websites, and yet the question wasn't only oh, look at how great this paper is. Isn't this an amazing example of how to do science? But the question the question actually was typically, what's wrong with this? Why is this, what could be done, what further could be done? What more is it that needs to be said in order to lock this down and clarify and clarify and clarify? And I think this ties back to something you were teaching in the cell biology course, which was trying to say, how do you think like a cell biologist? And because this is solutions and we're asking about the art of problem solving, um, I think it would be interesting to dig down into what you mean when you say thinking, how to think like a cell biologist. And, and anything else you want to touch on what I just said, please feel free. Um, almost any question you go after in biology today, whether it's um, microbiome, immunology, um, neuroscience, it all involves 
the behavior and functioning of cells. Mm -hmm. And there are many different ways by which you can approach a problem, which could include, you know, doing genomics. It could include biochemical isolations. Um, I think it's important in any experiment or any kind of project you're going after, again, whether it's, I shouldn't overly generalize, almost any project you could go after, whether it's from immunology, microbiology, to neuroscience, to look at it from a number of different perspectives using a number of different approaches. And since biology is fundamentally built upon cells, what I wanted the students of the course to do was not convert to being cell biologists, but for the particular problem they were into, begin to ask, okay, if I was to approach this as a cell biologist, what questions should I be asking? What approaches should I be taking? And the idea is to have that be a complement to all the other approaches that they're learning from the lab that they're in. Right. Um, so when we train students, we try to train them to think incredibly rigorously, to learn about everything we're doing. But if when I train my students, I only train them in such a way that they end up being exact clones of me, I'm actually not really enriching the scientific community as much. What I want them to do is also not only be a clone of me, but a hybrid between me and a hybrid between an immunologist and uh, you know, people of all sorts of different disciplines. So they come up with their own unique perspective right. that then they can bring to their work. So what I was trying to do is reach out to all, all the students who are vaguely interested in biology and say, okay, let's say you're going to approach this problem from the viewpoint of someone who's looking at it from, from the viewpoint of the cells. How would you approach it? Right. And again, it wasn't to convert them to be cell biologists. Right. Just to learn how to use that. And I hope when they go on in terms of, you know, you know, immunology is very important for areas of neuroscience and immunology is very important for various microbiology. I think the students should sort of learn how to view and therefore they can truly be interdisciplinary in how they approach their problem. Right. Um, this was part of why when I asked uh, Vaziri, hey, I want to eventually end up in biology, should I transition now or in my postdoc? Vaziri said, now. And I think the reason was, uh, which is funny because Vaziri himself transitioned as a professor, in a sense, um, or at least in his later postdoc, I think probably as a professor, really. Um, and and the, the part from the cell biology course that like really, really, I think, shown through was that how many different ways you slice a problem and how many different methods you use in concurrence with each other, right? If you have five different types of data that you can collect, collect all five is the answer, which was not something that I, not something I necessarily learned in my, ten, you know, my time as a physicist um, in undergrad was the idea that if you can test, normally it was have one way to test it that's like really, really definitive. But in biology, it seems to be have slice it from every every possible angle you can slice it from. And I don't know why that difference is precisely, but... Um, well, part of the reason is that for any particular approach we have, no matter how well you know the approach, we don't even... We still haven't mastered every possible assumption underlying it. Right. You know, some assumptions seem very straightforward, you know, Gravity is going to result in things, you know, being attractive. But there are assumptions that actually we may not know the real basis for. So if you can go after a problem by doing a genomic analysis, and then you can also do a biophysical analysis and then a cell biological. And at the same time, you get, get enough 
biophysical detail that actually can build a quantitative model that can actually make predictions about the behavior of the system and then go back and test it. You know, the more independent approaches, the greater the assurance you have that you have something that is predictable and testable and therefore a useful model in science. And, you know, the validity is, is it a useful model? And that's the advantage of having these multiple techniques. We're, we're, we're not clairvoyant. We don't know in advance, you know, what's going to end up working and not working. We, we can't, you know, with current problems, you can't go to the back of the textbook and look up the answer. Right, right. The text, the answer is not in the back of the textbook, right. which is the most, that was my, that was my favorite thing to say as an undergrad, which, which is in research, the answer is not at the back of the textbook. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I think really getting used to is, I I would say the most important thing I learned in my undergraduate was that. But that's actually one of the thrills of doing research. And and that's why I think it's very important for anyone who loves science to actually spend some time doing research. Absolutely. Um, Some people will go into it and discover that, you know what, I don't know what the answer is. And this is really leaving me insecure. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm getting variable results. I don't know what's going on. And if if you're the kind of person who gets very anxious about that, then, you know, maybe go into another discipline. But there are other people for whom they they get excited about this. And the the, the sort of like the the challenge of overcoming this is what really drives them. And those are the people who will get sucked into research. Right. It's the it's it's the love of the unknown in mm-hmm. some way becoming satisfied with no, so, this weird tension between being happy not knowing but not satisfied mm-hmm. that you don't know. Uh, there, there's some there's some tension there in a sense, and I guess that's the tension is the excitement in, in some way. Um, and then so when you've when you've gone through um, Oh, another thing I was going to point out was that it seems as if the number of slices you make um, on a problem is proportional to the number of assumptions you make. And maybe one of the differences is in that fi- in physics, the number of assumptions are a little bit easier to state because the number of interacting elements is so much smaller. But when you're in biology and there's so many interacting elements and there's interacting elements you don't even you're not even aware of, it gets harder to state all your assumptions. Whereas in particle physics, for instance, you can state your number of assumptions quite elegantly in a finite number of formulas. Or you can state the assumptions you're aware of. Right. I mean, isn't it possible there are more levels of assumptions, you know, in particle physics that you haven't even articulated yet? Absolutely. Okay. Um, However, it seems as if the models are so predictive and useful that there's no, there's no, uh, Mm. There's almost no gap to thread, though I would I, some of my some of my friends in in the field would disagree with me on that. Are there any current assumptions being made universally that uh, that have been getting your goat as of late? Any big biology wide assumptions or something in your field right now that's that's that you're kind of questioning and you're not sure makes sense? Uh, there are too many things I don't know that I can't even begin to. Um, I mean, it's just been uh, thrilling and fun to see you know, how we've gone from like, okay, you go from initially DNA to RNA to protein to suddenly realizing, oh, well, actually, things can go back and forth in different directions. You can actually have the RNA modulating back or proteins modulating back the DNA, or in fact, 
small non-coding RNAs modulating the coding RNAs and, or modulating the degree of translation. I mean, there are many more levels of interaction and it's been sort of exciting in science to see all this stuff being fleshed out as well as being able to start making predictions from it that we can actually test. And actually one way we test our predictions is actually to predict therapeutics that can actually address human disease. And then there's the real ultimate test. If your model is correct, you should be able to intervene and actually do something that could positively impact human health. Right. So you, 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 I was mentioning that you were interested in viruses, but you also are a expert in a rare form of liver cancer. I don't know if I'd use the term expert. Okay, I won't use the word expert. But you, you've studied, spent yep. a lot of time studying mm-hmm. a rare form of liver cancer. Yeah. So uh, there are lots of sort of very personal, emotional reasons why most scientists are interested in cancer. I don't, I don't know of um, hardly anyone who's never been touched either by friends or family with cancer. Um, and there are many different approaches you can take to it. And fortunately, the scientific community is taking many different approaches to it because right. we don't know what's going to end up working out or which combinations of ones will, in fact, synergize to help give some resolution. Right. Our particular approach has been to focus in on cancers that hit adolescents and young adults. The, the rationale being that if we work on a cancer in people that are 80 or 90, um, some of the confounding factors is that if you look at any two normal cells of the body, they'll have thousands of individual little bases in their DNA that have already altered just due to the aging process. Right. So if, if you compare the tumor to the adjacent normal tissue and you find there are a few little you know, bases that are different in their DNA, you don't know which ones are really correlated with the cancer and driving the cancer versus just passengers along the way. That's right. problem one. Problem two, by that age, some of these tumors may have been around for decades undergoing their own sets of mutations, which may have nothing to do with being a cancer, but they've just happened and you don't know which ones are really relevant to the disease or not. If you have a tumor in an 11-year-old, just the, the background cells have not had a chance to accumulate many alterations at all. The, the important point here being that at the beginning of your life, all your cells are very much so the same. Ver- not absolutely identical, but very much the same. The, ge- the genetics are, are like very slightly divergent. They're divergent still at the beginning? Oh, so we, we used to think they were, it used to be taught that they're exactly the same. In fact, there were all these studies that were done where they compared the responses of two identical twins to, let's say, two fraternal twins on the grounds that the identical twins are starting off with the same genome. Right. But in fact, even now we realize that even two identical twins already have a number of differences that have just occurred through development. And in fact, those differences could be significant enough to affect their responses to therapeutics. Wow. Um, But the idea being is that early on in life, um, they're still relatively close to each other. And we started off with a cancer that affects kids 10 to 30. Right. And in fact, what we found was there were essentially no differences between them. No, none of what they call these single nucleotide or single base variants. Um, no cases where pieces of DNA had sort of flipped around so they were inverted. Uh, we couldn't find any examples of pieces of DNA that had been replicated, duplicated to make multiple copies. And in this particular case, all we found was just a single deletion in, so 
to back up, you've got two copies of every piece of DNA you have. Um, and they have to package in these things called chromosomes. So everyone has two copies of each chromosome. Yep. And we found in one copy of one chromosome, there was just a single deletion that was big enough that two different genes that encoded two different things were suddenly fused together because all the pieces in between had disappeared. The genes that were fused together had never been implicated in cancer before. Hmm. So there's no reason to think that they were involved in cancer, except this was the only thing that was different. And by working in adolescents, young adults, where there was nothing else in the background, it became very clear this really looked like it had to be what was involved. Right. Because the point here, I guess, being that in in the in the elderly population, I just want to really reiterate this mm-hmm. for the audience, is that in the it, when you're young, all your cells are more uniform. As you get older, they each independently develop a certain number of changes in their geno- in, in their genes. And so two cells that are very close to each other can actually be very different. It can be quite different from each other in terms of what mutations they have, which makes it hard to tell from the tumor which which mutations are actually causal to that cell becoming a cancer cell. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying is that by working in young cancer, y- young young individuals with cancer, you're able you were able to find a specific mutation that actually was the cause of the cancer. And this actually led on to a third advantage of dealing with a cancer with kids. And actually, as time went on, we realized there are many of them. You know, some are purely pragmatic. If if you can cure cancer in an 80-year-old, you know, maybe you'll add on five years or 10 years to a life. Whereas if you cure cancer in a 12-year-old, you can add on, you know, six, seven decades of life. Right. But also, since the tumors are so much alike, there's been no time for them to really diverge. It also suggests that if you have a good therapeutic, if it works on one, it should work on all of them. Right. And so as a result, right now when we test a drug, if it works 10% of the time, we don't know, is it working 10% of the time because it's just not a very good drug? Or is it working 10% of the time because the patient population is very diverse and we just don't have a good model system for testing it? Right. Here, if it works, it's going to work on all of them. And one of the sort of interesting things we've been, we, we not being me or my lab, but we, the scientific community, have been learning is that when we study a really rare but well-defined disease, and it's particularly true of diseases in children, once we observe an interesting phenomenon that we can really nail down by drilling all the way down, it ends up being applicable to all these other diseases and all these other cancers as well. That's somewhat surprising to me. Why do you think that is? Uh, a lot of basic mechanisms in biology are conserved. Right. If you think about it, you're like, um, the genetic code is essentially the same from bacteria through humans. I mean, well, Can you talk about what conservation is? This isn't something we've talked okay. about on the podcast before, um, so I think it's a good thing to learn. So, you know, the, the basic information for encoding how to make all the machines of the body is in your, your DNA. And the way it's encoded is that the backbone of the DNA has a series of different um, units. Right. And they actually come as little pairs. Um, so if you, you know, in this case, they, they go by letters, which may be weird, but might be easy to show with symbols. Like there's an A that is always with a T or a G that's always with a C. So if this said A, G, A, G, you know, the opposite side will be, um, you know, 
TCT. What I said, but T- yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's the, it's the complement to it. And what happens is it's a group of three of these in a row that end up encoding for a single protein. So, for example, um, ATG stands for a particular amino acid that's a building block of a protein called methionine. That collection of codes is shared between bacteria, plants, fungi, humans. And this is the conservation of mechanisms. So just one extreme case, there was another um, pediatric cancer um, uh, called retinoblastoma, where they went through and they sequenced everything. And what they were looking for was what had been found in many other cancers, some gene that was altered. So it was really turned on and turned on in such a way that it was driving the cell. It was making mm-hmm. the cell really grow, really sort of you know, amplify itself. So it starts taking things over. And they went through and they couldn't find any genes that were altered at all. And they were totally bewildered. In fact, the only alteration was one gene that was missing. Mm. So one gene that was missing, you know, how does it end up producing a cancer? But since this was in kids and there were very, there was almost no other background mutations, they finally had to force themselves to say, maybe this one gene that's missing, maybe it's something that normally suppresses cancer. Mm. And maybe when you get rid of it, so you lose this tumor suppressor, that's what then allows the tumors to grow. Right. It was a very radical idea. It was in a cancer that was relatively rare. I forget the numbers. It could be 50, 100 a year in the US. Um, so from the point of view of a lot of people, they would say, oh, well, why bother funding that? Because it's such a rare disease. Right. But because it was in kids, it could be really well car- categorized. You could basically say, it has to be this because there's just nothing, nothing else, else. find there. This is the only difference. And this led to the whole notion of there being tumor suppressors, which if you lose them or they got mutated, that would then allow the tumor to proceed. And now that's been found in large numbers of cancers all over the place. See, so they, they were harder to find in older adults because they were in the background of all these other mutations that had just occurred just due to the process of aging. Yeah, see, I've heard about these tumor suppressors, but I didn't realize that they were discovered because you found it in, because it was found in some rare... Uh, you know, it, it, rare form of childhood cancer, and then mm-hmm. working in, in in child or adolescent cancer actually gives us a higher signal to noise ratio mm-hmm. with regards to what what um you know what's actually causal to the cancer's development in the first place. I, I that's that's a I mean I I hear about tumor suppressive pathways pathways back when I was in high school. I mean that's mm-hmm. something I've known. I feel like I've known for a really long time, and it's interesting. To, I never, I was never aware that it had to do with this, this, this kind of fundamental difference in working with cancer in adults versus working with them in, uh, or, or elderly adults, especially, um, and working with them in adolescence. So I, I would argue that in general in biology, if you can get a rare disease that's extremely well characterized, um, it's really worth going after. For that matter, I would say that if you want to get after a lot of the mechanisms of cancer, let's get all the childhood cancers and really dig into them. And dig down, and in the end, you know, even those of us who are no longer children um, will then you know benefit and re- reap the rewards of that work. Right, right. That's it's interesting to think that studying childhood cancer actually will have downstream effects to to adults as well. So, when when you, um, I mean, th- this must be an emotionally difficult 
place space to work in though is that is that do you ever find that challenging oh uh sorry if i'm asking so the um kids who get this disease are in the age of 10 to 30 many of them are in the 16 to 25 age bracket which means they're of the age bracket to work in the lab and we've had a number of the patients working in the lab um and a number of the patients who are working in the lab who have passed away yeah and um it has a number of impacts. First, for everyone who's working at the bench now, most of the people are not aged like myself. They're mainly in that same age bracket, the 16 to 30 age bracket. So the person working across the bench from them actually has the very cancer that we're studying. And it sort of keeps you very focused on what you're working on and why you're working on it. Right. Two, it helps inform a lot of the things you go after. Like we frequently are trying to debate to what extent... Do we go deeper down into the basic mechanism of the disease or do we go after a therapeutic? And there are good arguments that way. Maybe if you go deeper into the mechanism, we will learn more about vulnerabilities that will allow us to develop better therapeutics. On the other hand, better therapeutics could help the people who are struggling right now. To what extent do we go after like a good solution that can give us something this year, maybe by repurposing a drug that's already around versus a more perfect solution for something that is really precision targeted, but will take three to five years to finally get to the point of helping people. But by then we'll lose a lot of people. Right. Um, To what extent do you go after something that's more of a boutique solution that could really, really work well, but based on current technology will be available, you know, only to a very select few because of the expense or, and then just hope that down the line, it becomes more affordable. To what extent do you actually target only those therapeutics that you think initially will be more affordable? And so actually the patients get involved in these discussions as well, which actually is more comforting than disturbing because if you're having these discussions with them and they know exactly what's behind all the rationales for the decisions, I actually feel more at ease making those decisions. And they have a seat at the table. So helping oh, yeah. that, how, how, having, having that input, it makes it, makes it so that you don't have to feel like you're this god of therapeutics standing on the mountain making decisions as to who you know gets or doesn't get you know this that or the other based on the impacts of what research decisions and avenues you go down i can understand why that would be well, i would slightly modify your statement okay, though good. using by basically plagiarizing um, francis collins who i heard say once what we want to do is not give patients a seat at the table but have patients involved in designing and preparing the meal Hmm. Can you go and can you elaborate? Yeah. So in other words, rather than just coming and we'll tell them, we'll give talks to them and say, oh, this is what I'm doing. This is how we're going about doing it. We're actually welcoming, welcoming them into the process of doing the research, of helping to collect data, whether it's reaching out to other patients if they want to do that or working at the bench and actually being part of the whole decision process of how we're going about deciding which way to go. We're just bringing them to the table. It's sort of like, okay, I've already gone about, I've designed the whole therapy. I've decided the approach mm. we're going to take. Come here and I'm going to sort of serve you what I've prepared. Right, right, absolutely. And so it's The really, spirit of that is different, I understand. Yeah. Uh, it, but this is a this is very unique. I don't think I've ever heard of a lab where this is the case. Um, is it more common than I know? Um, I think patients are starting to get more involved, but I would urge it to happen more often. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I mentioned this was a rare disease. There are maybe 50 
um, patients a year in the U.S., um, it's very hard to get data on it. And yeah. any one institution only has a few patients. So we've worked together with a patient community where they've actually, together with them, they've organized a medical registry where what they've done is rather than having, you know, hospital A, B, or C who only have five patients, the patients themselves run the medical registry where they have other patients bring in their medical data. And in fact, what they've done is they've, by speaking to patients, family members, epidemiologists, pathologists, surgeons, oncologists, they've come up with a list of 600 questions that aren't on the usual medical form that they then ask. And on top of that, then collect you know, the usual medical data. And in the course of the last few years, they now have medical records and answered questions on 197 patients for a disease that just has 50 patients a year in the U.S. Wow. And so this is now empowering a lot of work where they can now collect data and, you know, clinicians are now getting approval from their institutional review boards. So these are the boards who give approval to do human subject research to go in and to actually go through the data and address questions that otherwise couldn't be involved before. So this, this is one way for patients to get involved who perhaps don't want to work at the bench or don't want to be trained in science. Right. You're seeing, but I think you're going to start seeing more and more patients also getting involved over time. How do you, how do you, do the, do you typically find these patients to work in the lab or do they find you or how is that worked out? And how can that be generalized to help this happen more often? If that is indeed something that, uh, well, I think we're seeing more and more citizen science in a lot of different outlets. Um, I was just hearing of an interesting case in, I believe it was San Diego, where they had a lot of people going out who were just swabbing benches, door handles, whatever, and doing assays for SARS-CoV-2, mm -hmm. the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, I think we're getting more involved in getting kids interested in science at earlier and earlier ages. And you start seeing more of these citizen science type investigations. There's a group out of City University in New York, Queens College, I think Queensborough Community, maybe the New School, a few others who've been going out and collecting wastewater from different New York City treatment plants. And again, assaying for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, there were a group of, I believe they were high school students out of Rockefeller who a few years ago was swabbing the New York subway and elsewhere. High school students out of Rockefeller? Yeah, they were part of the science outreach program. Oh, right, 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 um, right. They were also involved with others in going out to local fish markets and actually getting small samples of fish and doing PCR tests. Is that really tuna or is that really salmon or is it really... Right. And... um, Oh, right, because people were selling fish of different, of the wrong, right. of mm -hmm. labeling it something different. Right. Even though it was like some sometimes like an endangered species or a species that you weren't, or is that right? Or, or not yeah. endangered, or, or all, or they, they were just, or also they were pawning off fish. some right. other cheap fish as something else, and they're being dishonest. But in in Probably general, more that. I, I I I love the fact that Rockefeller has been running a program where they're getting kids from you know K through twelve to come into the lab and get involved in projects. Absolutely, because science is impacting on everyone's lives more than ever. I mean. It was, of course, very obvious this year with um, the, the, the COVID-19 epidemic. Right. But it's true in all sorts of ways. I mean, I, I remember teaching high school to uh, high school science kids and like kids were really wanted to know like, you know, what were headaches or how does aspirin affect or there were all different ways by which biology was affecting their lives. Y young parents wondering, 
Do I give my kids genetically modified food? You know, what's the difference between creating a new fruit by grafting it or, you know, creating a new dog species through grafting versus the genetic modification? Now, my interest is not to tell them they should go for genetically modified foods and not going for it. What I would love to them to see is to understand it and feel comfortable enough to go into the science literature and learn and think on their own. And I, I think that's what we really need to do is not so much get the public to be scientists, but get the public to be incredibly science liter literate so that they can start making their own decisions by learning how to think critically about issues and critically evaluate them. Right. I, I've gotten, I've gotten kind of, um, it's the right, I, I understand why people are saying this these days, but I've gotten a little bit bothered by the phrase, I believe in science, because I don't really believe that science is a belief. In some sense, science is a process. And you can say, I think scientifically would be a much better, would be a much better bumper sticker. Or, you know, I, you know, or, or I trust the people who speak, who, who think scientifically, you know, on my behalf or something along those lines. But that's not as cute of a bumper sticker, I suppose. Um, because I just don't, I've avoided that dialogue. I, I believe that's enough. important to do critical thinking and critically evaluate things. And, and that's true, whether you're, you're asking the question about what's responsible for global warming, or you're asking about political <laughs> issues. Um, it bothers you too. Or asking about the neighbor dog. You know, I, I think one of the problems in the last 20 years is that we've been dropping a lot of the critical thinking from the science curriculums. It's much easier to teach people what they call the truths of science right. rather than think critically about problems where maybe we don't know, we say we don't know what the truths are. And that impacts things outside of science when it comes to, you know, teaching things about what's happening in the public domain, whether it's on education, political issues, whatever. What you want to do, what let me rephrase, what I want is a public that's going to think critically about it and not just accept whatever the politicians are saying, right. is, you know, the truths of what's happening. Well, I, I think, for instance, ironically, when I was in high school, the place where I learned critical thinking maybe the most, um, there's two classes that I, that, that I think were better than my science classes at teaching critical thinking. Number one was my English classes. Mm-hmm. Because I remember, I remember when I was, um, I, I was, I was a junior in high school, and I said, I said, I was feeling very snarky that day, and I said to my teacher, "Well, we keep going through these, we keep going through this, uh, th these exercises of talking about, you know, issues and in, in politics and etc. But when are we going to do English?" Uh, we, you know, as if like asking to do grammar again. I don't know. I probably wouldn't have, I would have hated it if we had done grammar again, but I was saying, why don't we do English? And, and, and he, and, and he, <laughs> he burst out and he grabbed a textbook off his, off his, off his wall and he slammed it down on my desk. And he, he, I love this guy, by the way, mm. Mr. Pierce is a great teacher and he was one of my favorite teachers. And he, he wasn't doing this aggressively. He was just doing it for a fat, dramatic effect. And he, and he, and he says, Find, this is this is a high this is a college level English textbook. Find something in there that isn't about thinking, you know, thinking about uh, thinking through a problem. And you know, I, I, I lo and behold, there isn't anything about grammar in there. There's nothing about sentence structure, and it's all about it's all about critically thinking through mm -hmm. through through problems. And I learned that better. Um, in fact, you know, it's funny because I learned logic not in my math course. I learned logic in my English courses. 
right? I learned, so for a long time, I, I, like English was my favorite class. Well, that's why I didn't say that I want to train people to think like a scientist. Right. I want to train people, I would like us to train people in critical thinking of Absolutely. which I think science is a great vehicle for teaching them how to do it. It's not the only one. I mean, R- like, right. I fully value using you know English, using the examples from history. I mean, there, there are many philosophy, there are many approaches to teaching people how to think critically. And maybe the best thing is, just as in science, we take multiple approaches for raising people to think critically, take multiple approaches as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that's one of the areas in which we as a society have um, been falling short in recent years. Well, because I didn't know I liked math, for instance, until I got into undergraduate mathematics. Because when I was in college math, it was all about proving and showing that you could state your assumptions and think through a, through a problem all the way through. Whereas in high school, I couldn't like I would try to ask the questions as to why this, that, or the other, but the the answers were never that satisfying. And I don't think it was really the fault of the. I'm not sure I, if I really blame the teachers because I don't know if they had the had what they needed to answer the t- the depth of questions that I was I was trying to get at that I didn't know I was trying to get at. Um, I didn't, you know, because I didn't even know what I was trying to ask. I was trying, you know, but I was digging at something that I could start digging at once I was interacting with college professors rather than high school teachers. Um, and I think that, I, so I, I, this kind of, I guess, comes back to the importance of getting getting students access to college professors early, because I didn't have real access to college, a, you know, a college professor until I was in college. Um, my, the first time I really spoke to a co- college level math professor was when I was 18 and already admitted to a university. So, and it turned out to be one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) Which I wouldn't have necessarily guessed beforehand. Um, So, anywho, do you have any, any things that you would like to, uh, you know, if you, as a young, if a young person is coming up in science, do you have any recommendations for what types of things they should seek out in their, in their local community or what types of things that they can get going on? early um i think that now is like the best time ever in human history to be entering science we have this amazing situation now where we're having this convergence of not only sort of basic biology and biochemistry and genomics but the ability to manipulate genomes manipulate um molecules and cells using a variety of biophysical techniques study them with detailed biophysical analysis, um, but then putting that together with mathematics and chemistry and physics in such a way that there's this incredible perfect storm going on now. Um, I'm saying in biology, in the life sciences, which is including the math, the chemistry, whatever, in such a way that um, we can start formulating questions that five years ago you would have thought were science fiction or just unaddressable and therefore not worth asking. Right. you know, we've gone from, in our own work, taking a cancer where six, seven years ago, we didn't know, was it something that was encoded in the genes or genomic, or was it due to mutation in some of the peripheral cells of the body? We know it was a one disease or, disease or many to the point where we can go ahead and completely reconstruct this disease in a mouse, study its properties, and then design therapeutics, even now start setting clinical trials in the course of six or seven years. And and none, none of these were tools that we invented. You know, we're, we're not, it's, it's not as if we were like, you know, 
you know, God's came to earth. We're, we're standing on um, the benefits of what's been 30 years of investment in basic research. Right. And basic research being, you know, not just biology, but I'm including the math, the physics, the chemistry. Right, um, where all those things set up the ability to do various types of imaging or different types of uh, different types of microscopy, like right. that's imaging. But um, you know, there's electrophysiological techniques that exist now, and there's all there's all sorts of. In fact, you developed one or helped develop one such tool, right? Because really, the toolkit has evolved to the point where we have massively right. more tools as biologists than existed 20, 30 years ago. And so the amazing thing is that it's really like a perfect storm where you can almost, you know, take any part of the body now, go into it, find a fundamental problem, nail it down, and then find a therapeutic um, implication for it and follow it through. And that's really exciting. So I mean, I, mean, I think now is the best time ever in all human history to be entering into science. Yeah, well, I feel fortunate to be here then. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I would say that this is true for this is true for um, true for biology especially. Um, I may be more cynical as to whether this is the best time ever to enter physics. I would say the best time ever to enter physics was 1975. Um, uh, in, in many ways, you could view a lot of the problems in in biology, particularly on a cellular level, as solid state physics. I mean, oh, I uh, can you elaborate on that? Actually, oh, just I mean, what is DNA? What are proteins? They're they're polymers, right? It's a you know it's a particular set of polymer physics, right? Um, I, I agree. This is how I this is how okay. I ended up moving. This is how I ended up moving into biology was because I think there's there's a lot of room for physicists if they could see that the future is not in a bigger particle accelerator. <laughs> um, do 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 come on over and 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 be, get involved. Um, I don't know if there's a cultural issue that will prevent that from happening because I think that there's a certain, I've seen a lot of very brilliant people spend a lot of time working on confirming again that the standard model is just fine at the energy scales we have access to. Um, but, you know, we may still surprise ourselves and find things we don't know. It's true. I would not, I, I value all of that work also. I, I know. <laughs> I, would, I would not necessarily drop it. I'm just saying that it's an exciting time in biology, and it's a time, though, for people with perspectives in physics, chemistry, math, on through. Right. And, and they're I, all welcome. I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I, I'd like more, like more uh, like-minded physics and math people to okay. come on over and join me over here. <laughs> but we should remember that a lot of the advances in, fun, in the biology now are coming because of investments elsewhere. So, for example, let's say in 1960 you wanted to cure vision problems. Right. You could have put in hundreds of millions of dollars into, you know, various studies in ophthalmology and understanding the eye. But one of the biggest advances actually came from developing the laser, right? Because from the laser, you can go right. do, you know, cataract surgery. I mean, we aren't clairvoyant. We can't tell what's going to pay off. So I'm a strong believer in investing in good, solid, fundamental research. Right. Um, and I started at the very beginning by saying, it's a statement of belief of mine that if we do this, it's going to end up, you know, really feeding back in a very positive way. Right. I can't prove it, but I can say, just look at the track record of all these years of work in science. And right. It's really, we've all benefited from it. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for being here today. Um, and I have one final question, which mm -hmm. is my, my standard final question okay. here, which is, who else should I interview? 
just as I think you can go to any organ of the body. Let's say if I assigned you to work in the colon, you go after that, you're going to find something really exciting. Go to yeah. the kidney, something really exciting. So I, just think, I think you can hit just any one of the faculty and go to them and you're just going to be, wow, that was fun. <laughs> I thought it was really intellectually engaging and interesting. Um, I feel very fortunate to be here. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I feel fortunate for you to have come on. So, okay. uh, yeah, I will... No. Get anyone at Rockefeller, you'd be thrilled. Okay, deal. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sitting with me for yet another episode of Solutions. I look forward to seeing you on the next one. And in the meantime, you can like, share, subscribe, and comment on YouTube, as well as rating this podcast five stars on Apple Music. You can find us on Spotify, multiple other streaming services, whatever you like. We're pretty much everywhere. That all said, thank you again for joining us. This is Mason Hargrave signing off.